Patrick here with some exciting news. We now have 10 local communities of engineering leaders hosting in-person meetups all over the world. Yes, you heard that right. There are 10 local communities in cities all over the world. These groups are led by engineering leaders just like you who wanted to create a place to connect, to share insights, and tackle critical challenges in the job. To get involved, go to elc.community. Sign up if you haven't already. If you have signed up, make sure you update your location and we'll get you plugged in. We're launching local events all the time. You can find them and get involved again at elc.community. So for one decision of a CEO, the entire company can take months and months of work on observing, orienting, and deciding before that decision is settled throughout the organization. Now imagine if CEO the very next day comes in and makes another decision of the same scope and another one. Because for CEO, the decision is already done. He can move on or she can move on, but the team is still like wrangling. So it's very important for you as a leader to understand the speed at which your company or your team can process your decisions before you make the next one. Hello and welcome to the Engineering Leadership Podcast brought to you by ELC, the engineering leadership community. I'm Jerry Lee, founder of ELC. And I'm Patrick Gallagher, and we're your hosts. Our show shares the most critical perspectives, habits, and examples of great software engineering leaders to help evolve leadership in the tech industry. In this episode, we discuss the differences between building a platform versus a product with Oksana Kubishina, head of operations entertainment at Riot Games. We explore some of Oksana's favorite leadership and management frameworks and cover topics like overcoming early alignment challenges when committing to platform building, strategies for cross-discipline and multidiscipline thinking, leveraging OODA loops in your leadership style, and how to reduce the pain and impact of rapid decision-making on your teams. Let me introduce you to Oksana. Oksana oversees operations of Riot's entertainment division with a goal to imagine and develop bespoke IP experiences and products that deepen players' and fans' connections to the universe Riot has created in League of Legends. She held positions, including head of infrastructure, development director for League of Legends, founder and head of Riot Platform Group, and VP of Game Studios Operations, helping build the foundation for the launch behind and operations of Riot's new games globally. She's also been a leader of diversity and inclusion efforts within Riot, and she's been honored by groups such as Girls Inc. and Wonder Woman Tech. Enjoyed this conversation with Oksana Kubishina. Oksana, we're so excited to have you here. You have had such an interesting and exciting career journey. So I have a, a bunch of questions related to a lot of different aspects of that. But to begin, I was wondering if you could just tell us about your experience building and leading the Riot platform group and what you learned from that experience. Yeah, for context, I've been at Riot for a couple of years. Riot is a video game company releasing some of the most successful games in the world globally. And when I joined Riot, it only had one game, League of Legends. It's uh, the most played PC game in the world, uh, which sounds scary because of just like how much technical complexity goes into that. Uh, and the company was pretty big. There was about 750 people working on League of Legends at a time when I joined. And after a couple of years, it seemed like Riot Games was kind of gearing up to to release new games. There's a couple of games that were a part of our R&D department, kind of like baking. And I was the head of development on League of Legends at the time. 
And what I've noticed is that those new games, the R&D games, started kind of submitting requests. Hey, can you help us with, you know, account integration? Hey, can you help us with a patch or set up a playtest, bootstrap database, you know, things like that. And I've kind of realized that we should aim to support these games in a more structured way and we should like take it seriously. And so the solution I proposed was to split League of Legends team and product into two. One would be the core game, League of Legends. The other one would be what we call platform. Platform would include everything, like one-stop shop to release a game at Riot. It was a lot of work required to kind of generalize all of the tech and processes and products we built for League of Legends to make it reusable by multiple games. So my fear was we may be too late. The games would be releasing or aiming to release next year and we have two years worth of work to generalize. So luckily we kind of align on the timing pretty well, but that was the history of that. We executed that reorganization of League of Legends and I was asked to lead Riot Platform Group or RPG for short. And I've led that group for about four to five years, I believe. We had a great team. We built a great platform, which released all of the new Riot games globally with no issues or problems, which is an incredible point of pride for me. The ability to generalize all of the tech across all of the new games coming out seems like a really complex and difficult problem. In that process, were there any lessons that stood out to you about platformatizing a product or, or something like that that stood out to you in that experience? There, there are many aspects of this. So one was the organizational challenge, meaning the company always been uh, one product, which is League of Legends. Top priority was League of Legends. All resources were for League of Legends. And the R&D games were more like skunk work. Moreover, a lot of the culture at Riot at the time was uh, heavily decentralized. Basically, the idea was we hire very smart people, we enable them, and then they run and basically build their own products, kind of silos. That was very effective strategy for us to scale the company. For example, we bootstrapped a lot of offices around the globe that operated League of Legends in, that, in their particular region. So enabling those leaders around the world was a very effective uh, strategy for us to scale. However, what this created is this kind of mindset of don't tell me what to do. I don't want to depend on any other team. I want to move fast and make my own decisions, which kind of was flying in the face of, hey, let's centralize and build this one platform that all of the games would be required basically to ship on. So a lot of the challenges were around alignment. So that was like one of the big bodies of work that we had to pursue. Uh, the other aspect of building a platform was actually figuring out the scope and what goes into the platform. If you think about it as one-stop shop for releasing a game, you can argue, hey, procuring uh, laptops for developers technically under a platform, like IT work could be under a platform. So figuring out what should be under the platform organization was very tricky. And we had to do a lot of negotiations and thinking about what makes sense. So we end up with putting ability to distribute, so distribution platform, ability to manage data, so big data platform, ability to manage player requests and player support localization and global infrastructure. So all of our data centers that run League of Legends, so we had to build a lot of new infrastructure time. At a time, we actually leveraged cloud a little bit, but not to the degree that we're currently doing. So we actually were in a data center business. So all of those groups were consolidated under platform. Um, so figuring out even within those what to build and what not to build and how to build it was very tricky. So I had to leverage a lot of expertise of the leaders who were 
running those um, those initiatives. So that's a couple of aspects of where alignment was needed. And finally, also the alignment up. You know, man, we, we talk a bit about managing up. Uh, this required a lot of managing up because support for this idea and this initiative uh, had to be all the way through the CEO. So having the right sponsor, having the right relationships with the executive team were very critical in our ability to succeed, particularly because the culture of the company was quite a bit of anti-centralization at a time mm -hmm. and it needed to be corrected from the top. I really appreciate the deconstruction there, just understanding the organizational challenges and the context to understand a little bit about how this was similar or different from your role exclusively leading engineering teams. Like what were some of the challenges in building out this new group that came up um, and how did that compare to some of the stuff exclusively with engineering? Yeah, that's a great question. When you lead an engineering group, you have to practice a lot of leadership skills, but you have to think from the tech perspective only. And in a role like this, basically you have to transition from like a discipline thinking to a cross-discipline thinking. So you have to figure out, and, and in my case, very quickly, not just how to understand tech and advocate for tech, but also how to lead a team, how to do comms, vision and strategy, PNL and alignment, building the team, hiring, firing, managing, prioritization, all of those things were like became super important. And you couldn't also kind of just like live in your comfort zone. And also you felt the, like I felt very insecure in my ability to manage all of these aspects uh, because I haven't done it to the scale before. So the transition was pretty difficult, but it was like I had to learn very quickly and by necessity. And a couple of things I realized during that journey is that I realized that like basically everything is a skill. So, you know, like sometimes you look up to these people who are like amazing public speakers and you're like, wow, I wish I had that. Or somebody who has a great sense of humor and always makes you laugh. And like, I've realized that a lot of the things that I thought I was lacking to lead this group and to, to be in this position, they're not something that you're born with. You know, a lot of people actually still believe that you're born with certain characteristics and you know, like charisma, you're born with charisma. And I've learned that everything like sense of humor, even, even charisma is all learnable. I've been watching this uh, YouTube channel, it's called Charisma on Demand. Mm -hmm. And actually that's what kind of like got me to think about this in this way. You're able to learn like your body language, the, the words that you choose, the storytelling, even sense of humor. Uh, it's surprisingly like even the greatest of comics uh, or stand-up comedians, they uh, have a few go-to jokes that they practice and have in their pockets. So whenever they're on the spot, it's not like they have some magical skill to, you know, crack up a joke. They have some that they've practiced and prepared that they always lean on. So you can absolutely do that. And I tried it and it works. So everything is a skill. And in this particular role, I've realized it. Like to give you another example, when I was asked to lead this, I knew nothing about PNL. Like I didn't even know what the PNL stand for. I think that's a very common, yeah. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I've never seen uh, like uh, a financial statement. And then like uh, my first meeting was the financial guys where they were like, showing me all these like spreadsheets. I com got completely overwhelmed. I didn't know what I was doing. Meanwhile, this was the biggest expands the biggest cost center for the entire company and they've just trusted me with this like all the data centers all the cloud expenditures you know whenever i encounter something that i don't know i just basically figure out okay like it's a skill i can learn and i just took steps to learn it i took a class on financials like very basic accounting and financial forecasts and things like that you know on how to manage somebody or how to like uh, i had to fire at some point a couple of people i like i studied 
what's the right way to fire a person it was like really scary for me but it can be learned so i've i've just basically went after some lessons from some people and 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 uh, reading and learning these days everything can be learned like the the information and the lessons are so widely available so that 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 move from single discipline to multiple disciplines like not only do you have to acquire a ton of different skills but i have to imagine like there are certain patterns or habits that you've you've embodied as a leader that you have to let go of what did you have to let go of from that single discipline to multi-discipline transition what what i would say i had to through a very painful process to let go of is this kind of notion that i have to have the answer in tech particularly if you leave like if you're in a tech director role or architect role the expectation is that you actually stay up to speed with technology and you're able, at least at a high level, architecture level, make calls, like technical calls. And that was my expectation of me in previous technical roles. In this role, when I first stepped in, I actually, by habit, attempted to do that, where I felt like it was my job to, you know, decide what the right strategy was for our big data architecture, as an example. And I very quickly learned that by trying to hold on to that mindset, I actually disempowered leaders who were put in charge to lead those efforts. I made them feel like I'm overstepping and micromanaging. And I got some feedback on that. And I also was, because I was so concerned with doing it right, because it was like the biggest job I ever had, like I had to make all the right decisions. I was so intense about my decisions that people felt I was intimidating when I would come in so strongly. And sometimes my decisions were not really well backed up by research or by actual deep understanding of the problem set. And on top of that, I always felt I was behind because to make this kind of decisions, I felt I need to do research, to spend mm-hmm. time to understand the problem. And I end up spending so much time doing that versus just kind of like allowing people who know best to make those decisions. It was like counterproductive for everybody. So this pattern of like, I have to know the answers and I have to make the calls versus trusting people. Um, that was probably the biggest mistake I made early on and something that I had to let go it was very painful. My pattern of trying to solve a problem is very similar in that like I have to deeply research as well in order to know the answer. And I just really relate to the the sense of when you expand your scope, you just simply don't have the time to do that. My follow up question was going to be, you know, you, you shared a lot of the the things that you was like, maybe your first pattern of behavior that you had to let go of. Do you have like a, an example or a story of now, like, what is the what does the perfect world look like? Like, I guess when you've changed the way that interaction goes in order to empower other people and give up decision making power to the quote unquote, the, the people that know well, what does that look like in an ideal state for you now? Yeah, I'll, I'll tackle it from slightly different perspective, which is your customer. So when building platform, you have a lot of people who you want to use your platform to launch their games. And they all have opinions about what needs to be built, how it needs to be built, in what order it needs to be built, what priorities are. So I remember when I started, I was trying to manage each customer separately. I would go to like one game and like, hey, what do you need? And like go to the next one. And then I would try to make decisions on how to prioritize their requests. And I quickly learned that no matter what kind of decision I make, somebody will be unhappy. And I would be always in this kind of losing position, having to like manage somebody's frustrations. The way I solve this and what ideal looks to me now is then rather than trying to do it by myself and inserting myself into this, I bring them all together 
in one room and empower the team, them as a team, to make these decisions on behalf of our like platform or group or whatever. I work the same way with basically any team these days. So when you do that, a couple of things happen. First, they realize all of the challenges of all of the other teams. So they're kind of forced to hear everybody else's perspective and they realize that maybe they're not top of the priority. They're able to comp compromise much better and they're able to come up with like really brilliant solutions that maybe sometimes accommodate both sides or multiple sides at once instead of just doing one-offs for everybody. They feel more bought in into the whatever decisions are being made and they feel much more comfortable with decisions that they disagree with but have to commit to. So my idea looks like whenever I have a problem that I need to solve or a decision I need to make, I usually bring it to the team. Now, very important to distinguish sometimes and manage expectations on whether it's a decision they can change or not. Sometimes, you know, like you don't want to give them an impression that they can change a decision if you already made up your mind. It has to do like top-down, you know, company-level decisions. But most decisions, it's usually a great idea to let them figure out and decide. I can imagine so many points in my life where leveraging that practice would have created a better outcome, not just in terms of a better decision, but everybody feeling better about that decision and increased alignment. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, I, I was just going to also add that has the other benefit for you as a leader, which is you don't have to be as prepared or as research to have the answers when you go into the room. I've learned to leverage listening as like a key skill set in making any decision because now I, in most cases can walk into my team's meeting and I know what kind of decision we need to make or what kind of problem we need to solve. And then my skill set is not in making that decision, but in listening and pulling out opinions from the team and making decision right there or maybe right shortly thereafter. But I no longer feel the overwhelming need to kind of be prepared, research. I can work to most any meeting now without preparation and kind of come up with a good decision as a result. And the team will feel very bought in into that decision. That's such a, a powerful distinction in terms of what your role should be in that conversation. I wanted to talk a little bit, you, you'd mentioned the platform group as the example here. I wanted to dive in a little bit more into some of the differences between building a platform and building a, a product, so to speak, and how these differences affect your, your leadership style and approach. You, you just shared an incredible example. I was wondering if there are other differences uh, using using this platform group as an example. Yeah, that's a good question because we still struggle to define what platform truly is and many different people have different definitions of a platform. Product is much simpler than a platform. Product is usually very singular and has a specific customer in mind and solves a problem for that particular customer. That's a pretty straightforward thing to manage and also validate whether it's working or not. Platform is very much more complex in the sense that on any given platform you have, um, let's say it's a content platform of some sort, uh, you have people, the end users, if you will, the consumers of whatever is produced on that platform. So it's like players downloading the games, paying, getting insights or, uh, you know, interacting with player support. Like they are the end users of this platform. But then you also have the content producers or game teams and various other teams within Riot who are putting content onto your platform. And you need to solve for both at the same time. Not only that, but you also need to solve for multiple internal content producers, if you will. Because, you know, like what works for one game and the needs for one game may not be the same as for the others, but both need to be able to effectively leverage the platform to release their games to the players. So it's a significantly more complex problem to solve. It's also 
very tricky to know whether it's working or not, mm-hmm. you know? Players usually will tell you if the game is good or not, but whether a platform is working, it's a bit more fuzzy because it has so many pieces and so many parts. We had to come up with a really creative ways to measure whether the platform is working. So everything from internal customer satisfaction, are the game teams happy with leveraging the platform and tools we provide? The uh, usage, you know, what we build, are people actually using those components in their games to release their games? And how often and how many games are using each component, you know, things like that. Uh, Obvious uh, metrics as well as uptime. So it's much more complex. And I think when you build a product, you frequently hear like you got to understand your customers very deeply. You got to like work very closely with your customers throughout the entire development cycle just to make sure your product is solving the right problem for them. The same goes for the platform as well. I think goes back to like the skills I had to develop is like internal alignment for the platform. You have to work with your internal customers very closely. You have to build relationships with them. You have to make sure that you're first one to hear that they're complaining to you, not to somebody else about what's wrong with the platform, that they're feeling heard, informed and understood and supported. And uh, one of the key lessons I also heard is you got to like walk this tight balance between like your vision for the future and the ideal platform that will solve everybody's problems and what they need right now. So uh, you don't ever want to overbuild or build ahead of them and and like then give it to solution. Like here's a gift for you. It's kind of like a ivory tower approach. We you always want to build in lockstep with your customers and you build what they need when they need it, not too much ahead of the of the time. I think this is so relatable because you'd mentioned the the Riot team sort of culture and structure was decentralized. I would probably, I'm going to make an assumption about like being fiercely autonomous. So I'm thinking of anybody who has like aspirationally autonomous teams where the teams get a lot of identity about like that don't want to be blocked. That working closely element is so important because then that team feels like they are maintaining that autonomy and that independence and that decentralization or, or they, I guess they feel less blocked by more of a centralizing organization. So I wanted to ask about not building ahead. How do you balance or ensure you're not building ahead of your internal or external uh, stakeholders? So this is a very tricky balance because you do need to build a little bit ahead. Uh, you need to have a vision. So so uh, platforms are tricky in the sense that you cannot treat a platform as a pure service. And it's a mistake that many platforms, or at least internally attempted platforms, fall into, Mm -hmm. which is being a service organization, meaning like a customer comes into you, asks for like, hey, I need a patcher. And you build them a patcher, give it to them, and now they have a patcher. And so it's a very responsive, kind of like reactive way of building a thing. And it usually fails because your customers have different needs in different time. And, and you can never kind of come up with a unified solution that works for most, for most of the use cases. So what you kind of want to do is you want to go and interview all of the customers, understand their use cases in depth, and then come up with a vision or understanding of like what would be a solution that solves for most of them. And the trick here is to start with that understanding and that vision in your own head. When you start building it, build it with at least one active customer who needs it right now. And you build it like small increments. So like build something that works for them right now and solves a problem right now. And then over time, you can improve it. Um, we, we established a process where we basically broken down the game development into milestones and we tied our features to their milestones. So we like work to agree, hey, for this milestone, you need to release the games to internal players. Therefore, you need these features. Therefore, we'll build them for you. So that we always looked kind of like six to 12 months ahead 
agreed on that. But then we try to work very closely and build for the need right now. That is such a tricky balance, but I, I could see the elegance of when you get kind of this aggregate sense of what are the needs of everybody, then you can start to prioritize, plan, and create a unified approach to it. Um, so that makes makes this kind of sense. My other follow-up question was, you, you talked about the measurement process, uh, like some of the internal tooling. How did you come up with that measurement process? I think mo- most importantly, I'm looking to understand, like, what were the questions you all were asking yourself? What were you weighing as part of identifying what the measurement process was going to be like? I think the complexity of the platform was pretty big in the sense that it was impossible to come up with a unified set of measurements. Measurements for player support looked very, very different or like customer support looked very different from the measurements for data centers, for example, right? So generally as a lead of the entire group, I came up with like a couple of verticals that I always wanted to have a pulse on my teams. So it's product, process, costs and like uptime and people. So for people, we would measure things like your satisfaction, you know, like, do you have all your roles filled? Things like that. Do you have any single uh, points of failures? Uh, Things like that. But for product, we would establish a specific set of product measurements. So if it's a data center, for example, we like it's it's going to be like around uptime, availability, capacity, things like that. If it was player support, it's just like how many tickets had to wait longer than 24 hours before they were answered, you know, things like that. So it was very different for different initiatives. But this is also where it came into play, this ability to or the need to leverage the experts mm-hmm. for each area to define what good looks like for that. Because I, I, I was just thinking about that. I was like, man, if you asked me to determine metrics for player support, like I, I probably wouldn't be able to come up with what's the most effective thing. And so when you summarize, here are the five areas we looked at, and then we empowered the people on those teams who are working in that area to come up with what good looks like. I'm like, ah, pff, the unlock. And that goes back to what you were saying earlier, that it's about empower. the biggest switch is empowering people that are in that space to be able to come up with the solutions or come up with what good looks like. This is actually like... a. a- leadership framework that I kind of have in my mind now that you just described, Mm -hmm. which is when you manage your teams and people sometimes struggle with like micromanaging on when to like zoom in or zoom out. Like I found the best way to manage teams is you kind of create this API between you and them. An API is the, these key measurements that you agree upon upfront. You know, you kind of like, hey, what does success look like for you? That forces you as a leader to really define a success. Like your success is if you have that much uptime, this much satisfaction on your team, uh, you know, like this much cost, you know, your budgets, your revenue expectations, whatever it is, you upfront, you agree, and then you just monitor and measure and you review those. But then you allow your team to kind of understanding those goals now and those expectations run. And you only zoom in when there's trouble, you know. So that's kind of like a framework with which I approach most of my management, like in most of my teams. Patrick here with some exciting news. We now have 10 local communities of engineering leaders hosting in-person meetups all over the world. Yes, you heard that right. There are 10 local communities in cities all over the world. These groups are led by engineering leaders just like you who wanted to create a place to connect, to share insights, and tackle critical challenges in the job. To get involved, go to elc.community. Sign up if you haven't already. If you have signed up, make sure you update your location and we'll get you plugged in. We're launching local events all the time. You can find them and get involved again at elc.community. Speaking of frameworks, there's there's a handful of different perspectives that have been impactful to you as a leader. So I wanted to dive into a couple different ones to learn more about your thoughts and and how you apply these. So first one I wanted to bring up was OODA loops. So can you talk a little bit about 
what that is and how you apply that in your leadership style. Oda Loops is one of my favorite frameworks. It's a military framework. Uh, it's about speed of decision-making and how, how you should go about making decisions. So Oda stands for Observe, Orient, Decide, Act. We, uh, we like to add C between D and A, Observe, Orient, Decide, Communicate, then Act. <laughs> I love so it. that's a slight <laughs> modification to the, to the framework. And it actually comes from military observation about how fast planes fly in a dogfight, if I recall correctly. So like if you observe, orient, decide and act, depending on your plane, you can actually outmaneuver your opponent uh, much more effectively. So for a leader, the key note here is that before you act, before you decide, you must take the time to observe and then orient. Observation is just like you gathering information. Orienting is starting making sense of that information. Okay, this person said this, this person said this, uh, this is what was written. And you start kind of like shaping ideas and concepts in your mind and making opinions about what needs to be done. Then and only then you decide, then you communicate, and then you act. So a lot of people skip the first few steps. They try to prove themselves, uh, especially it's like a new role, you know, like they, they try to move too fast. They try to prove that they know what they're doing or they're a competent leader. So they start making decisions way too fast. Um, so I always leverage this framework for myself to remind me like, hey, like take the time. It's okay. And it's better to take the time. But also I use this framework for all the new leaders. You know, there's this other great book is the first 90 days. It's a similar concept. You know, the first 90 days, you don't, you don't act, you don't decide, you just observe and orient. But the other reason why this framework is exceptionally powerful is particularly for people who are leveling up and, uh, you know, going from a smaller role to a bigger role, understanding that your UDA loop, like everybody has those UDA loops. You have that. So how fast you are able to orient, observe, and decide and act. And your team has one. And every person on that team has one. And so the trouble comes is when your, your loop is much faster than your team's. I've seen this, for example, a CEO makes a decision. Hey, we're going to pivot our company strategy from, you know, remote work to uh, on-campus work or like vice versa. That is one decision for a CEO. Now, CEO's team has to now take that, orient a bit uh, with that decision, understand what needs to be done and for, for each respective area, decide and then act. And then their reports and then their reports and then their teams all have to do that. So for one decision of a CEO, the entire company can take months and months of work on observing, orienting, and deciding before that decision is settled throughout the organization. Now imagine if CEO the very next day comes in and makes another decision of the same scope and another one. Because for CEO, the decision is already done. He can move on or she can move on, but the team is still like wrangling. So it's very important for you as a leader to understand the speed at which your company or your team can process your decisions and act and settle in them before you make the next one. So you got to move sometimes much slower than you would, that would feels good to you. So you got to hold yourself back a bit. I'm having like an aha moment as you talk about the speed of processing as a source of conflict, because I, Jerry's not here to defend, defend himself. So I, I'm not going to be able to dive <laughs> super deep into some of those conversations, but I do know that like no times like him and I will have a conversation and we'll talk about, okay, we need to move this way. And then the gap between making that decision and the actual execution of making that real is pretty big. So then the next time we check in, maybe it's a couple of days or so. And the question might be like, well, what's the status on, on X? And it's like, well, there is a, a pretty big roadmap to make this a real thing. And then there being friction behind that decision. And and then making it a reality. So I just, I'm just relating to that. I, I felt yeah. that. 
With that friction, because that, that's so common for anybody, I think a lot of people listening tend to be within the senior director of engineering, head of engineering, where everyone maybe is like reporting up to a CEO or, or reporting up to somebody that maybe has that type of influence and gap between decision and execution. How do you understand that process of decision making or I guess reduce the pain of that gap? I think there's like twofold. Like one is how do you as a leader slow yourself down enough to understand how fast your team is able to process your own decisions. I actually failed this miserably uh, many times so that now it's pretty, um, I have a pretty high awareness of this. So, so the reason I failed is uh, I say I failed because I got so much feedback about I was moving way too fast and people felt overwhelmed uh, when I was leading them because they couldn't keep up and they failed as a result that they are incompetent, they're a failure. There's like a tremendous amount of stress. So like, I never want to be that kind of leader again to overwhelm my teams and make them feel like they're failing when they're in fact, it's me who's failing to lead them properly. So as a leader, I think you can do two things. One, just be aware of this general concept. And second one is stay close to the work. Meaning I've seen so many leaders kind of like make a decision and then don't check in with the team don't understand what's involved in making something happen. And then you're just going like, to expect things to happen. I always try to set up touch points and like always check in and remember, like a lot of leaders also don't manage the volume of their decisions or projects in flight. They're just like, hey, go do this. Hey, go do this. And then they forget that they already asked this person to do five other things. And, uh, you know, like a person trying to do everything at once. So like have some sort of a way to remember all of the projects that you asked or that are in flight and then check in with the person like, hey, what, what is the scope of this? How are you thinking about doing it? And if you see a person taking the wrong way and there's a better way, you can catch it at that time. But fundamentally, understanding the nuances that go into implementing something uh, without going too much in detail, like would be your responsibility if you want to move at the right pace with your team. And then imagine if you're somebody who has a leader that's doing it that to you when your manager or your CEO moving way faster than you're able to keep up. I think in this case, it's just feedback and explaining this to them and showing them the work required to do it and setting up proactively setting up checkpoints like, hey, let me update you every week on the progress and like over communicating with them. What I've done in the past, I actually draw a picture of uh, some of the decisions. The other faux pas that leaders do is when they have decision. That's why communication is so important there. When they make a decision, they communicate maybe to one person mm -hmm. and then they are to the next thing. And then that person tells the other person, that person tells the other person. And you see these kind of decisions kind of like propagate through the organization. And by the time everybody's aware of the decision, the next decision comes in. And so like how you communicate is also very important. So if you have a team, if you made a decision, very consciously communicate and kind of like ratify all decisions and answer questions and align the team right at that point. And so if you are a team member of such a leader who seems a bit chaotic, like structure it, have structured meetings, maybe like weekly staff meetings where you discuss these decisions. If you notice this in your organization, bring it up. And also like just to feedback to your leader and, and make sure that they're familiar with the OODA loops. Well, you mentioned drawing a picture of decisions. Can you explain a little bit more about what that looks like and what you mean by that? Yeah. So I drew a picture of our leadership team. So we have a cross-functional team. So we have like head of communication, head of PR, head of uh, insights, head of operations, uh, head of tech. And then we have actual product leads of every initiative, like head of initiative one, head of initiative two. So like that's a team. 
that's about 12 to 15 people. And then you have a leader who's leading that team. Whenever a decision is made, so like I drew like a, literally a slide, animated slide, where I put all of those people and then I put that uh, leader up top and then I drew an arrow. So like leader makes a decision, tells head of the initiative about it. At this point, none of the discipline leads know. Then that head of initiative maybe tells their head of operations. That head of operations tells the head of comms. Head of comms tells head of legal. Head of legal tells, you know, and so like I drew just kind of like random arrows animated from one person to the other until you can see like how everybody now learn about the decision, where it's like arrows everywhere, where it would have been much more effective, faster and better in a meeting where everybody's present to communicate a decision to everybody at once and answer any questions and mis like address all the misalignments. And then your team in its entirety can act as one much faster. So that's kind of how how I try to explain it. So powerful. I mean, just in, in your explanation of that, you can almost instantly see the inefficiencies of one way versus the other and the, the transformational power between unifying everybody around that decision first where that may take a little bit more time and a little bit more coordination on the front end, but it gets people moving to action faster. That's fantastic. No one's ever broken that communication flow down to me like that before. And I feel like I'm having an enlightened moment, Oksana. That's awesome. It's a, it's a good way to work with your team. And, and the other benefit of it, I noticed in cross-functional teams, particularly in experienced leaders, not in experience, but like people who are moving from a discipline to a cross-functional team leadership role, they tend to kind of not realize how to include various other disciplines, particularly disciplines that they are least familiar with into the team and decision-making flow. So working with that, like in this fashion where maybe you have a standing staff meeting with your cross-functional leadership team and you communicate all your decisions, even if it feels repetitive to you, you just communicate as much as you can and you'll notice that they start asking questions. They feel so much more included. Their engagement goes through the roof when they feel consulted, informed, and able to do their job so much more effectively. So multiple benefits. We are close to the end of our time. We have a, a few rapid fire questions if you are ready to dive into those. Yeah. Perfect. What are you reading or listening to right now? I've decided to improve my English because English is not my first language. And I have decided to read a classic that I read in Russian previously and in Ukrainian. So Oliver Twist is what I'm reading right now in original English. It is very difficult. What's the premise of the, the book? I, I have heard of it, but I, I've been deep into sci-fi, so I haven't really gotten into the classics much. Oh, I love sci-fi, yeah, in fantasy. But Oliver Twist is about an orphan, you know, living back in the day, and it's just like a narrative. It's pretty fantastic, slightly sarcastic uh, narrative about what it's like to be an orphan. And I think it grows like such a great sense of appreciation. You know, like we complain about, you know, this and that in our current society. It just like gives you so much appreciation for what we currently have and like perspective of what it was like, you know, hundreds of years ago where there's no infrastructure, there's no like foster services, there's nothing. And, and you are a poor kid with no parents and how you navigate life. It's incredibly profoundly sad and transformational book. I recommend highly to read it. I love it. And also what a great reminder of the transporting power of literature in into different perspectives. That's fantastic. Next question. What tool or methodology has had a big impact on you? I think since we're talking about leadership, there's a couple of leadership frameworks that I feel were transformational for me. Probably the biggest one was John Wooden's definition of success when I was like figuring out what 
am I successful or not? What does it mean to be successful? Uh, his definition of success would help me navigate basically any challenge that I see ahead of me, which is basically boiled down to do your best. You know, aim to win, don't aim not to lose also, kind of like a, as, a, as a framework. But uh, the second one that was super powerful was Ray Dalio's principles. Is this idea that rather than try, trying to figure out things every time, you know, you can kind of like write it down as a rule and then in any future situation just reuse that rule as a principle you know uh it really helps to also understand what your values and principles are it makes you a much more principled person i really deeply value people who operate from principles i definitely definitely appreciate that what is a trend that you're seeing or following that's interesting or hasn't hit the mainstream yet I mean, it certainly hit the mainstream right now, uh, but it's AI. I'm just like trying to figure out all the creative ways to like confuse uh, chat GPT <laughs> and streamline my processes as well, because I think it has tremendous potential just like on a day to day, you know, streamlining your activities, like writing an email, you know, like writing a post online, but also like a lot of gen generative AI. My husband right now is uh, generating a bunch of avatars from the photos and uh, like we're both very entertained by that. But just like, I think it has a potential to transform so much of how we work in so many different industries that I think we'll see a lot of different changes as a result of this uh, in the next few years. Is there a certain application that you're most excited by right now? Or I guess, you know, that's up there that gets you really excited. It doesn't have to be the most one, but but one of. One that scares me, I'll tell you this much, is actually a search AI-based search engine. I think a lot of people don't understand the fundamentals of how AI works. And it seems mythical and very all-powerful and smart to them. And when it starts answering questions, sometimes people take it as a fact. And I've seen a couple of search engines popping up where you like you ask ChatGPT as an example, you can ask to to like a question and it will answer. And rather doing your own research and understanding all the pros and cons and the body of work on that question, it will give you some answer, which may be totally biased and incorrect, but it sounds very intelligent and like well-packaged. And you sometimes tend to believe like this scares me. So I hope we do much more education around what AI is to the like mass population and also be very careful about what applications we build on top of it. I think that's such a great point. I would be really interested or curious, uh, a chat GPT like program that would have like a show the work or a cite the sources underneath the, that layer to show you like, what are the inputs that led to the output? But that also seems like an incredibly complex thing to, to put out there. Because um, I definitely have seen some of those examples where people are like, oh, answer this question and totally make something up. But I've also found a lot of help in terms of like giving a place to start with some creative work. It helps prompts and give a good place to start. But yeah, that's exactly it. Like if it's used as a place to start, or idea generator is like incredible. If it's used as like the definitive answer or the final product, that's where it's scary. Definitely. Last rapid fire question. Is there a quote or mantra that you live by or a quote that's really been resonating with you right now? I have uh, my favorite quote of all times that I at one point even thought of tattooing on myself, but I have no tattoo, so uh, I avoided that embarrassment. Uh, but th the quote is, whether you think you can or you think you cannot, you are right. Uh, I strongly believe in the power of mindset. Um, I've seen it time and time again. The mindset can like literally set you back and make you fail, or it can make you succeed. Like people who succeed are the ones who don't give up. This is my favorite quote of all times, and I try to live by it as much as I can. A powerful way to close us off, Oksana, whether you think you can or you think you can't, you are right. We dove into OODA loops, going from 
leading the engineering function to leading a broader platform group as a general manager and so many different frameworks and approaches as a leader in between. Oksana, thank you so much for such an incredible deep dive. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. I really enjoyed this conversation. If you enjoyed the episode, make sure that you click subscribe if you're listening on Apple Podcasts or follow if you're listening on Spotify. And if you love the show, we also have a ton of other ways to stay involved with the engineering leadership community. To stay up to date and learn more about all of our upcoming events, our peer groups, and other programs that are going on, head to sfelc.com. That's sfelc.com. See you next time on the Engineering Leadership Podcast. 